Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series at the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Clem, one of the editorial fellows this year. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Bob Gabay, Chief Science and Medical Officer at the American Diabetes Association, the ADA, an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and one of the authors on the ADA's new 2022 Standards of Medical Care and Diabetes document. Dr. Gabay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Clem. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. And I know you're a busy man, so I'm happy that we finally got to schedule you in. I'm just curious, what is the process of the guideline creation like at the ADA? And after having done a lot of these guidelines and reviewing them for various podcasts, it's rare to find a society that's able to update a guideline annually. So I just want to get a peek into how you guys are able to achieve this. It is a lot of work, and that's why probably uh, organizations don't do it yearly. So we start really with an incredible professional practice committee, and that's the group of experts that are interdisciplinary from endocrinologists to pharmacists to ophthalmologists or nephrologists or cardiologists, really a, a really wide spectrum of individuals. They begin by an exhaustive literature search that looks at everything new from the last standards of care were published and break into subgroups based on their expertise and associated with each of the sections within the standards of care. And then the fun starts. We get together and there's discussions, debates, sometimes arguments until ultimately consensus is reached on changes in recommendation and the evidence to include. And then we go through the editorial process and they come out in diabetes care. We have about 4 million accesses per year of these documents, so they're really well-received and we're excited to be able to put them together. The other thing I'll mention about it is that not only do we publish a new set of standards of care each year, but over the last several years, the diabetes field has been moving so rapidly that a year is too long to wait and so we created now what we call the living standards, and that allows us to do selective updates between years. So normally released December, January, but before the next year, we'll often have, as we did this year, some additions as part of the living standards. That's great. And that should excite diabetics everywhere to know that this field is rapidly evolving for them. What were some of the hot topics that came up during this guideline process? You had mentioned in pre-recording some of the different updates that were done this year. And I think that framework might be helpful for the listeners too. So there was really quite a lot of new information. And if I were to sort of try to at a high level, give you the four themes, new information about screening, the second around individualizing care and sort of the continued journey and that approach to diabetes care. The third item being around comorbidities and the associated comorbidities with diabetes and their management. And the fourth, really around technology that has been transforming the world of diabetes. So screening, individualized care, comorbidities, and technology would be the four big themes. Great. Let's just dive right in. There are new recommendations now for screening in diabetes. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the rationale for the new recommendations for universal screening for diabetes and prediabetes at age 35. The decision to make that change really is based on a few factors. One, 
the alarming rise in individuals developing diabetes at younger ages and the recognition that still somewhere between a quarter to one-fifth of people with type 2 diabetes are undiagnosed. And so that led to the recommendation to start screening everybody at age 35. But individuals that have risk factors for diabetes and are overweight or obese should be screened even earlier and in many cases as early as age 18. Wow. I just want to remind listeners that this recommendation is mostly in line with the ones from the USPSTF as well, although they do recommend the screening in the presence of overweight or obesity, which is a slight difference here. With the advent of checkpoint inhibitors for solid cancers, we are now knowing more about them and that they can cause diabetes in certain individuals. How does this type of diabetes present and can you contrast it with classic type 1 or type 2 diabetes? It's been an interesting journey to see this. It is uncommon, but worthy of those that care for these individuals and use these treatments to be cognizant of, to be on the lookout. And it can present as fulminant diabetic ketoacidosis and really resembling type 1 diabetes. However, not with antibodies, the the classic autoantibodies that we use to screen individuals for type 1 diabetes. So it's type 1 diabetes-like. It appears to be some type of immune-mediated destruction of beta cells and leading to a pretty rapid development of diabetic ketoacidosis. Yeah, I've seen a few cases of this, and it seems to be quite dramatic, as you describe. There's a new recommendation in the guidelines to, to test for what is known as MODI in those without classic features of type 1 or type 2 diabetes. I'm not super familiar with MODI, so I wonder if you can explain to me and to the listeners, how does it present? And if we suspect it, how do we test for this? So MODI is maturity onset diabetes of youth and typically presents at less than age 45. And probably the most notable thing about it is that it is autosomal dominant. So one would think about this in a situation where someone's presenting with a milder form of diabetes, typically under the age of 25 with a strong family history. Those should be the clues to suggest thinking about this. The reason it's important to make the diagnosis is that it can influence the treatments. There are a number of uh, single gene defects that have been described to explain why people develop MODI. And depending on which of those genetic mutations have occurred, there are different treatments. And in some cases, they may require no treatment. In others, sulfonylurea is actually the first choice. And pathophysiologically, many of the MODI variants are really more about insulin secretion and not really insulin resistance. Hmm, That's very interesting. And while we're sort of still in the category of screening and causes of diabetes, are there any other additions you would like to make? One other one in terms of pregnancy. So new recommendations this year are for First of all, any woman that is planning pregnancy to screen them for pre-existing diabetes and really for all women before 15 weeks gestation to screen for pre-existing diabetes. So this is separate from the usual screen for gestational diabetes 
24 to 28 weeks. It's really the presence of diabetes prior to pregnancy. And some of this depends a little bit on the population you serve and in a population that is generally going to have risk factors for diabetes. Those are the individuals you want to be sure to screen for pre-existing diabetes. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Moving on to the next category of individualized care for patients with diabetes, SGLT2 inhibitors are, are a major class of drugs that have revolutionized the market, both for diabetes and for patients without. And now they're recommended to reduce progression of chronic kidney disease in diabetes, with many of those trials actually coming from our pages at the journal. Can you sort of summarize the evidence for us and the rationale behind using them now in diabetes? In the standards of care, an early decision point in terms of pharmacological treatment of type 2 diabetes is based on the presence of comorbidities. So if the individual has congestive heart failure, kidney disease, or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you start right away thinking about SGLT2 or potentially GLP-1 medications for those individuals, regardless of whether they're on metformin. And that is something that is new. We traditionally had always thought metformin is first-line therapy, and certainly it still can be. But regardless of whether the individual's on metformin, or frankly, what their A1C is, if they have, for example, congestive heart failure or kidney disease, they should really be considered for SGLT2 therapy right up front. Got it. And in those who have chronic kidney disease and are unable to use SGLT2 inhibitors, finerenone is now recommended to reduce that progression of CKD. Can you talk a little bit about this drug and how it's working? Yeah, so it is a mineral corticoid antagonist, receptor antagonist, and has been shown to be effective in individuals with chronic kidney disease to prevent progression. The studies have generally been in people already on an SGLT2, which is now becoming the standard of care. So we don't know in the absence, so to speak, as much, but clearly they are beneficial for reducing the progression of disease in chronic kidney disease. The caveat I'll alert people to is studies have been in albuminuric chronic kidney disease. So it's important to be sure that that is what one's dealing with. Mm, got it. Thanks for that clarification. And in terms of other comorbidities that we might think of, especially in this era, diabetics seem to be at higher risk of getting COVID. What do we know about the safety of the COVID vaccination in these patients? Here are a few things that we know. One, that COVID has had, sadly, a devastating impact on the diabetes community, and as many as 40% of all deaths associated with COVID were in people with diabetes. The risks to people with diabetes are not so much contracting the disease more easily, but more having more severe outcomes. And that's where the real considerations are. And the initial trials that led to the approval of the vaccines available had significant number of individuals with diabetes. So we have good data on the safety of the vaccines for people with diabetes. And as a result, we align our recommendations with the CDC in saying people with diabetes absolutely should be considering vaccination and boosters. Perfect. Are there any additional thoughts that you have on these two sections, sort of either regarding comorbidities with diabetes or individualized care for patients with diabetes? 
I'll mention something else around comorbidities that we put new information in, and that is liver disease and diabetes. And I think that's an area that we're going to see a lot more information about as therapies become available. It is exceedingly common for people, particularly with type 2 diabetes, to have NASH or NAFLD. And the progression to more serious disease is sadly not uncommon. And in many ways, this is becoming the leading cause of liver disease is associated with people with diabetes and obesity. There are studies showing that the GLP-1 agonists can be beneficial in individuals with diabetes and liver disease. And there are a number of other treatments in the pipeline. So again, I think you'll see a lot more about that. The other comorbidity I'll mention is cognitive impairment. And from two angles, this is discussed in this year's standards of care. One, we know that people with diabetes are at increased risk for cognitive decline. And therefore, it's important to screen for that and then think about how to adjust therapy for individuals that may have reduced cognitive capacity, simplifying medication regimens that have been shown to be beneficial for these kinds of individuals. Got it. One more thing that I thought of, I'm not sure if you can comment on, is the comorbidity of obesity and diabetes and whether surgery might be something that might be indicated for them. Obesity, you know, is extremely common, particularly in people with type 2 diabetes, but even as much as one third of individuals with type 1 diabetes have obesity. So it is quite common. There are now some new treatments recently published in the journal and presented at the American Diabetes Association scientific session simultaneously that have shown profound effects of 15% weight loss with terzepatide. So I think that's an exciting new arm treatment modality to consider. At the same time, we have a lot of data now on bariatric surgery and the benefits in individuals with diabetes. And frankly, I think it's underutilized given how much robust data we have, including long-term data, 10-year registries showing continued benefits. People do regain some weight, but it is quite effective in terms of glycemic control, reduction of medication use. And it's probably best for people earlier in the course of disease. So people early in the course of type 2 diabetes may go into remission and not require any medical therapy for some period of time. If one waits later in the course of disease, the likelihood of remission is significantly less. Yeah, I recall one or two patients on my panel in residency who had gotten bariatric surgery and had their diabetes in remission. So I regularly bring it up for my patients to see if they would qualify for it. Yeah, I think it really is underutilized and I've had a number of patients. And the interesting thing is that these individuals often don't need any medication very early, even in the hospital, before really they've had significant weight loss. So bariatric surgery has benefits that are not strictly explained by weight loss. Hmm, That's so interesting. Maybe we can move on to the final section that you mentioned, which is technology for patients with diabetes. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the up and coming or new technologies that we need to know about? So this year in our standards of care, it's been an evolving series of recommendations. And now really 
the recommendations are for anyone on insulin, children, adults, and older adults that have either type 1 or type 2 diabetes but are on insulin, they should be offered continuous glucose monitor to use. Wow, that's amazing. I wonder if you can also comment on the use of technology in the inpatient setting. I know that that is something historically that maybe healthcare providers have discouraged the use of, but I wonder if there's any evidence here to suggest otherwise. So one of the things that the American Diabetes Association did early in the pandemic was to work with the FDA to permit the use of continuous glucose monitors on the inpatient setting, in part to reduce risk to healthcare workers so that one wouldn't have to go around doing finger sticks. Since then, there's been a lot of data on CGM use in the hospital. And as we're doing our yearly review for the 2023 standards of care, that is an area where we're looking at that data and evaluating that as an appropriate use. The other area that comes up around technology in the hospital is individuals that come in with their own technology, whether that's an insulin pump or a continuous glucose monitor. And there are protocols now that describe the safe use of those devices in the hospital, largely utilized by the individual with diabetes, assuming that they obviously have a good mental state and not sedated, et cetera, can be very helpful. And it needs to be done, obviously, under medical supervision in the hospital, but they're very effective tools. Yeah, I agree. And I find that our patients often are more savvy with their own tools than we assume that they are and can easily manage their own diabetes in the inpatient setting if they're with it, like you said. And it frustrates them historically before we allowed this to happen in the hospital. I can't tell you the number of patients that just like would go nuts and they're like, just let me do it. They're checking my finger stick while in the middle of lunch. Of course, it's going to be high. Just let me do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to give our patients more credit sometimes. <laughs> and we need to screen them appropriately to know because we describe the savvy patient and some need supervision and maybe can't do it on their own. And of course, blood glucose control in the hospital where infections, steroids, changes in feeding, it's far more complex than outpatient management. Right, right. I wonder if you can give us a glimpse into the future and sort of opine on the closed loop system and how close we are to having sort of the artificial pancreas for our patients. Some of this depends on how we define it. So we have automated insulin delivery devices. They continue to get better. And for the listeners that may be less familiar, continuous glucose monitor that feeds its data into an algorithm and then drives an insulin pump to deliver subcutaneous insulin is what we're talking about. And that feedback loop, where they work very well currently, and there are several on the market, is to adjust insulin overnight because there's nothing else interfering in a sense. And so people overnight have really excellent blood glucose control and wake up with really good numbers. And for people with diabetes, that's been a big step forward. Where the challenge has been is they still require estimation of grams of carbohydrate and dosing of insulin accordingly by the user. And so they're not able to automate insulin delivery for meals. And so that, that's really the next hurdle, so to speak, in the advancement 
And just looking into the science of trying to crack that, there are a couple of issues. One, the kinetics. So the absorption of insulin is far slower in the way we administer it subcutaneously than the body normally does that through the portal circulation. And we're measuring interstitial glucose with a continuous glucose monitor instead of blood glucose. And there's a lag there. So the algorithms can't compensate for a rise in glucose after a meal because the insulin can't get in fast enough and that rise is lagging behind. So those are the technical challenges that are being looked at, whether quicker acting insulins can be one method and or other ways of sensing glucose that would really be blood glucose is the other sort of big area. And then can you take a picture of your meal and code it for grams of carbohydrate? There are some rudimentary things that do that, but they're not great at measuring portion size. They can tell a burger, but they can't tell, is that a really big burger or is that a little burger? And obviously it makes a big difference. Well, identifying the problem, as they say, is the first step to finding a solution. So I know really smart people are working on it now, and maybe this podcast will also inspire others to go into the field and to advance the research for these patients. Dr. Gabay, are there any other major updates that you want to highlight that we have not gone over yet? I think we hit a lot of the big highlights. What I probably would want to leave your listeners with is ways to access this information. Because one of the things we've really put a lot of time and energy into is not only the full standards of care that we revise yearly and with updates during the year, but there's an abridged version for primary care providers. There is a free app, and I really recommend this because it has a number of interactive tools. And we've also been developing a series of infographics that we'll be rolling out this year and then very much so next year for the 2023 standards. That's awesome. And we can include a link to all of these resources on our website as well to help get the word out there. Well, that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Bob Gabay for joining us today to discuss the latest ADA standards of medical care and diabetes document. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcasts and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. We would also like to form a focus group to get more formal feedback. So if you're interested in participating, please also email resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hamnick. Curbside Consults is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.